the men were sent to attack the Ammonians. They started from Thebes, having guides with them, and may be clearly traced as far as the city of Oasis. Seven days' journey across the sand. But, thenceforth, nothing is to be heard of them. It is certain that they neither reached the Ammonians, nor even came back to Egypt. Further than this, the Ammonians reported that the Persians set forth from Oasis, across the sand, and had reached halfway to Siwa, when, as they were taking their midday meal, a wind arose from the south, strong and deadly, bringing with it vast columns of sand, which entirely covered up the troops and caused them to wholly disappear. Herodotus, Book 3 of the Histories. Join us tonight for episode 1 of Portal, where we look into the disappearance of 50,000 troops of the Persian king Cambyses II. Welcome to the program. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And on tonight's episode, we're looking into the lost army of Cambyses II, the Persian Ooh. king. Persian so king. just a few brief comments on the show before we get going here. There's a lot of cool stuff to get into with this story. Definitely. Obviously, just the idea alone of 50,000 troops. Just vanishing into vanishing the sand. Is, is a wild. sea of sand, as it's been named. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. Mm-hmm. But the subsequent expeditions and hoaxes that would follow this story for, you know, thousands of years now since since the event. Up to present day, it still continues. Totally. And it's just, it's there's a lot to get into. So There's a lot of contradiction, a lot of ambiguity, and we're ready to tackle it. <laughs> we're, ready, we're ready to tackle it for you so, guys. Exactly. Um, so another... There's a few things. There's definitely going to be some mispronunciations. Uh, we're yep. going to have fun with that for sure. Probably going to be calling Cambyses Cambyses for the most part. Might refer to him as Cambyses offhand. Who cares? Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> not, not sorry. <laughs> some people do refer to him as Cambyses. And yeah, we've heard both in mm-hmm. different documentaries and things like that. But um, yeah, let's get into it. So what are the main elements of this story? I mean, we've got the Persian king. It's described by a Greek, um, you know, Herodotus is... Herodotus is the main, he's the sole source of this narrative. Um, the only... Yeah, the only person that actually told this story, um, perpetrated the myth. Um, right, and he was a Greek a Greek historian known as the father of history, and we're going to get into him in more detail Definitely. as we go along here and sort of his character. account. So um, let's, uh, let's, let's break down a little bit of Cambyses, because before we get into t- to the actual account of the Lost Army, I think it's... I think Important to do some background. Definitely. Just give some context So here. Cambyses, I mean, what, who was this guy? Who was this guy? He was the son of Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Achaemenid Empire. Right. Yes. So, this guy in particular, um, he was one of two sons of Cyrus. He um, essentially inherited the crown, hmm, how old was he? He was probably in his mid-20s to 30s, I I think something like that, yeah. Yeah, sort of a young character, you know. Um, Described as a hothead, um, psychologically unsound, according to Herodotus. Right. Very interesting um, anecdotes from that guy that we'll definitely get into. The madman Cambyses, as he refers to him. Exactly. And, but um, whether or not that's... Yeah, we'll, we'll get into the, the uh, validity of those 
of those claims from Herodotus mm. too, because there were some. There other... are conflicting accounts from Egyptian sources and otherwise that definitely paint a different picture. Right, but I mean his character obviously is really important uh, when it comes to this story and mm-hmm. the likelihood of, of the event actually happening or mm-hmm. whether or not they took the route that they did and 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 things like that. And we're gonna break all that down. Exactly. So yeah, he's the son of Cyrus. Cyrus Cyrus the Great. <laughs> when when so the Achaemenid Empire that formed when was that formed? Do we have that? Mm. <laughs> I don't think we have an exact I date. believe it was five. <laughs> he definitely... We'll get back to that. We'll, we'll come back to that. Oh, yeah. We got sources for that. But for sure. um, ultimately, I mean, Cyrus... Cyrus was... Um, he was a lot more... He basically was the founder of this Achaemenid Empire. He was the joiner of the Medeans with the Persians. Right. Um, kind of a half-breed himself uh, between the two. Um from what I read, actually, Persians were almost looked down upon during um, the Median royal family reign, which was immediately prior to Cyrus. Um, yeah, definitely some interesting stories about him and his sort of rise to power. He I was mean, kind he... of a baby in the basket type story from the Bible, right? Where he was of right. royal birth, sent away because he was seen as a threat um, from the king that was ruling at the time. Right. Um, grew up in a very modest upbringing, essentially lived that way until his royal parentage was recognized and he was reunited. He became a warrior of sorts, ended up, um, he actually revolted against the king that sent him away as a baby and then ended up, yeah, uh, it was a Medean, I can't remember the name of the guy, but anyways, yeah, he, uh, he definitely was a, a, an interesting character, that's for sure. And, and basically founded this empire and expanded it. What did he do? He conquered Babylon. He conquered Babylon, kingdom of Babylon. Mm -hmm. He, um, he essentially set up, um, Cambyses, to push further west, right? right? And just add on to the existing empire. That's right. And so right that was the I reason, got, right? So the Achaemenid Empire founded in 550 BC. Beautiful. There you so, go. Um, so about 25 years before the myth takes place right. that we will be discussing. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, Cambyses. So he, so, you know, after Cyrus, his son, Cambyses, named Cambyses II because I believe it was his grandfather was the first Cambyses. Exactly, yeah. Um, and uh, he so he, he takes over for his dad, and he starts to push. I mean, he's got some ambitions. He's not Definitely. he's not a as a boy when he was about ten years old. He declared that he was going to go to war with Egypt. As a boy. <laughs> as a boy. So it's almost <laughs> like yeah, he was definitely fulfilling his own prophecy. Right. Um, there are some anecdotes uh, that refer to other reasons why he invaded Egypt for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were expanding empire, though. Ultimately, they were, he, he wanted Ultimately, to Ultimately, maybe and... he was just looking for a reason. Um, right. He definitely put the king of Egypt, um, oh, I think it was King Amasis, in a, in a tight spot, that's yeah. for sure. So, yeah, I guess we can dive into that, or what do you think? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, Cambyses. So, he moves into Egypt, um, and he's, he's starting to make advances in there, and he's mm-hmm. successful. Initially, like, he is successful. He invades. He takes Memphis. Um, this was after King Amasis' death. So, essentially, his son, Samatis, <laughs> Samatis, Pasamatis, whatever. Pasamatis. I don't know. There's a P in there, and then there's an S, so whatever. Close enough. Yes. Um, so, essentially, yeah, this guy, King Samatis, he is, um, he's basically humiliated by Cambyses. <laughs> After Cambyses takes Memphis, crowns himself, like, you know, Egyptian pharaoh king, whatever they call themselves in that particular mm-hmm. era. But, yeah, he, um... He essentially humiliates this king, and then, after seeing how um, stoic and strong this guy actually was, after basically sending his son to his death, humiliating his daughter and his entire royal court that he once reigned over, 
Um, Cambyses then turns around, invites this guy into his court to live, and then once he finds out Awkward. a little while later... Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, and then he finds out that um, this uh, Samatist character is planning a bit of a revolt and just ends up... Ah, I see. Mixing him. And he gets offed. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah, I mean, he's definitely not uh, <clears throat> afraid to... Um, Get people out of the way that he needs to. That's for exactly. sure. And we'll get some more of that as we go along. This mm-hmm. story gets pretty dark. Um, so where the myth actually takes takes up was after this initial success and the push into the west and the south. So the south would have been towards Ethiopia. And you have that awesome anecdote, hey, Andrew, about the... Uh, that's right. Herodotus and the Ethiopian king and the fish eaters. And... Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So it sort of began before he sends the 50,000 troops uh, towards the Siwa Oasis to to eliminate the Oracle of Zeus. He, yeah, he wants to make advances to Ethiopia. And so basically what he does is he, um, he has this very backhanded, underhanded sort mm. of uh, gesture to the Egyptian, or uh, rather to the Ethiopian king. And basically what Who he does is... Who is much wiser. We, yeah, we clearly. Uh, so basically what he does is he sends what Herod- Herodotus describes as the fish eaters to Ethiopia. Um, and the reason was they these fish eaters, they could speak the Ethiopian dialect. And looking into that a little bit, basically fish eaters, as described by Herodotus, are any coastal peoples. Um, and in this case, they could speak the same dialect. So they were perfect to send to Ethiopia. So he sends these, these guys down there and um, he sends with them these dyed cloth linens. Yeah, there was a red dyed cloth. Some there gifts. was um the wine. There was one other thing. Right, too. the Persian wine which which he said he liked. That exactly. was Exactly. Like that was the one thing that the king complimented him on, but backhandedly. Backhandedly, mm-hmm. yeah. So he anyway, so basically this Ethiopian king I actually have I've I've misplaced his name here, but we'll we'll get back to that. But this Ethiopian king, he calls the bluff. I mean, he knows that he knows what's going on with the Persian advance immediately, and he knows that this is a very so the tale goes. yeah. I mean, this is this is just sort of a little precursor to what's what's to come, and he he can read between the lines. Mm-hmm. So he sends them back, and um, he calls them out and sends them back, and so of course they report back to Cambyses, mm-hmm. and Cambyses is choked. He's exactly. not happy at all. And there's that little bit about the bow that's given to the the messenger. That's okay? right. So why don't you why don't you go definitely? Over that a bit? Yeah. So I uncovered that little bit. Essentially, what happened was um, the king, in response, the Ethiopian king, sends back with these guys um, this bow. It's an Ethiopian bow. It's massive. It's nothing like the Persians ever used. And you need a lot of strength to pull it back and actually draw the bow in order to shoot the arrow, obviously. And so, anyways, he he basically gives them a challenge, this Ethiopian king, and tells them, as soon as one of these Persians can draw the bow, then they'll be ready to come and fight the Ethiopians. Because these Ethiopians, they actually have a really interesting uh, reputation as very long-lived, very strong, and just a very healthy um, population in general. Right. Interesting, right? Mm. Uh, I think they're, they're rumored to live to be about 120 years on average. All Persians were lived to be about, on average, about, I think he said about 80 years. Dang, that's... So, uh... quite the difference. And then that was the backhandedness <laughs> with the um, with the wine, right? Where he said, like, basically, oh, this is the, the pitfall of your society. You have all this wonderful wine, and therefore you drink too much, and you're lazy, and you don't live as long as a result. So, anyways, he sends the messengers back with this bow. Cambyses, enraged at being found out, his little, whatever, scheme... And being unable to draw the bow himself and having none of his other troops be able to draw this bow, this mythical bow, except 
Except for his brother. <laughs> Smurdish. Smurdish. Also known as Barita, depending on the source. Um, Darius, um, the Kembisi's Kem- successor, he actually um, refers to Kembisi's brother as Barita. But in Herodotus' account, he is Smurdish. Okay. Well, yeah, the, the so latter's the a little easier character. to pronounce. What a name, right? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> So Smurdus, he's the only one that can draw the bow. And he can't even really draw it. He only pulls it a few inches, I think it's about two inches, that he's managed to to draw it out. So anyways, uh, in a rage, fitting of Cambyses, as we will um, further develop in the podcast, he uh, sends him away in a rage. So uh, no brother in uh, Ethiopia. He's left with Darius, his spearman, who is also his successor after the death of Cambyses. And yeah, essentially... He's left in this um, tight position, right? Where he is essentially challenged. He's been humiliated by the yeah. Ethiopian king, I would say. Totally. In a haste, sends his troops, sends a faction of his troops, a whole army south to deal with the Ethiopians. Yeah. And then the other half, the 50,000, well, I'm not even sure if it was actually half where the numbers yeah, aren't quite clear. That's the part that's not really clear. But basically, yeah, he de- he, he essentially divides up his troops, mm-hmm. whether 50, or not it's 50,000 go 50, west 50. and then the others go south. Right. Um, the southern expedition is a little easier because they, it's, the routes are more laid out and they know where they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas they're more familiar, they're more familiar with it. And they do have, um, more resources along the way until they reach the sands of the south. That's um, right. Yeah. I, I remember reading in Herodotus's account how, um, <clears throat> essentially they are in very short supply because Cambyse sends them out essentially without any, any forethought. No right. supplies secured, no water, no nothing. So they're living off the grasses. They're literally grazing as they go. Like a Soldiers. Cattle. Soldiers are grazing. How are you supposed to fight when you're just eating grass? Yeah, once you get there, you'd think you'd be a little little uh, low in energy. <laughs> <laughs> Nutrient deficiency. <Yeah. laughs> Anyways, so these guys, they end up eating grass until, until there's no grass. And they reach the sands and then they resort to cannibalism. Eesh. And it's essentially a, a huge, massive failure. And it's they just were taking like one in every no ten or something. Is that that's what the the account yes, says? Yes, that right? is. Yeah, they resort to cannibalism. One out of every ten is basically eaten by his fellow soldiers. <laughs> Good times. Hope they brought some barbecue sauce with oh, them. Oh yeah. Anyways, yeah, um, <laughs> so yeah, so that's obviously when things start to go really sour for Cambyses. Things are not going well in that Ethiopia campaign. Nope. And he, he gets wind of this, though, <clears throat> and he calls it off. He does. He sends them back. Once he realizes that his troops are eating each other, he's like, okay, no. <laughs> and that's a point uh, we're going to come back to because it ties into Herodotus's claims that he's a madman. Mm-hmm. But he makes a fairly rational choice after making an irrational one, you could argue, and initially sending them out in haste. Mm-hmm. But he realizes that it's not going to work, and he calls it off, right? Yeah. Um, meanwhile... Um, he sends the other uh, faction of his troops uh, to destroy this Oracle of Zeus. Now, the Oracle of Zeus was located at the Siwa Oasis. Now, the Siwa Oasis is um, it's west of the of of the Nile, right? West west of Thebes. Is that correct? It is. Um, it's and northwest. It's northwest of Thebes. It's mm-hmm. out into the desert. Mm-hmm. It is not along the Nile. And it's normally, not... an important point is that normally, if you're traveling to the Siwa Oasis you don't take the desert route. You right. take the coastal route. Yeah. And there's only one road, literally up until the 1980s. This is like last century. There, <laughs> wow. was a, there, was, there was no road. It was a caravan track. 
And then in the 1980s, they ended up developing a road. So there's one road that goes into Seawoth. Wow. It's the only way in or out. Crazy. Very, yeah. That's wild. Very remote. So anyway, so they're taking an unconventional route. According to Herodotus. According to Herodotus, yes. So their f- next stop was Karga, the Karga Oasis, which is about, I think he says it's about a seven-day journey, yeah. seven-day march. Yeah, seven-day march across the sand. And, you know, the other part of the story was that they were also sent in haste, like without adequate provisions, but that they were going to have a have an agreement. They did have a pact with the Arabian king. Right. Um where apparently Arabians take their packs incredibly seriously. And so he had basically made an agreement with this king that they were going to have um, water pots essentially along the way stationed. Right. So food supplies ready. ready. So they didn't have to have these caravans, right? Which was the more um, practical way of traveling, not with 50,000 people because you need all the supplies to go with it. a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Even if it is 5,000 or 15,000, you know what I mean? Like, that's a lot of supplies. I mean, 15,000 people, you've got all the animals traveling Mm -hmm. with them, you've got to feed and water the So if you do have that secured, then that's a huge thing out of your way, That's a lot, Mm -hmm. definitely. So with that in mind, he sends sends them west. And, all right, so now that we're... Sending them west. And this is where, and this is where Herodotus' account, you know, he... he gets they, a little vague. It gets a little vague, but they made it as far as this first oasis. Mm-hmm. Um, it was totally probable that they could make it there. Still quite a trek. Mm-hmm. Seven days journey across the sand. And even if they were set up by the Arabian king and were picking up water and supplies along the way, that's still a long way to go. But they, they, they reportedly made it that far. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> now... Obviously, the, you know, the story continues from there, basically saying that... They never reached amo- the ammoniums that they were sent to attack right. at the Siwa Oasis. The Oracle the Oracle of Zeus, the Oracle of Amun, we've seen both of those, right? Yeah. Not sure if they're two different people. We should probably break down a little bit of what that means, too. I mean, when I was... Oracle, when you're reading yeah. When you're reading about ancient oracles, it always sounds like it's like... Just very mystical, very... Uh, right. But in know. fact, these pe- they, they were real human beings... Exactly. Um, that just, you know, were labeled, they were They were essentially tools of priests. <laughs> right. Basically. They were the, crystal, they were the human crystal ball of, exactly. of, of the high level priests. And they were a propaganda tool. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. They were, mm-hmm. they would, yeah, they'd be coerced and sane or not sane, whatever, whatever exactly. the powers that be wanted them to. And that's essentially what that means. And so the reason, another reason, did we already cover this, where they were sent there to destroy the Oracle because of the prophecy According to Herodotus? So, yeah, I mean, according to Herodotus, there was this prophecy from the Oracle of Zeus that Cambyses would meet an early demise. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit vague. And it had a particular location, too. Yeah. city. That's right. And and originally, Cambyses took this to mean that he would die in his capital because apparently the name of the town that was named by the Oracle was the same name as as a Persian city, which was a capital. That's right. That's right. But there is... So, yeah, yeah. yeah, and we'll get into that. We'll get into that in a little. Exactly. Bit. So anyway, they they're they're at this second oasis. They've presumably topped up their water. They've had a chance to rest. I mean, you're traveling across the Sahara for seven days. It's not exactly a, mm-hmm. a stroll down uh, Hollywood Boulevard. So uh, they they leave this first oasis. Mm-hmm. Now this continue is where their trek. continue <clears throat> their trek. Now this is the part where Herodotus's account. You know, he doesn't specify whether there were, uh, you know, Ammonian scouts possibly that had left Siwa and witnessed um, the Persian troops that had sort of started to, you know, move towards them or, or whatever it may be. 
but that must have been the case. There had to have been some, you know, local Bedouin travelers that's witnessed this or Ammonian scouts or something. Because basically, as the story goes, they leave the second oasis. They're on their way to Siwa. They're about halfway. And then during their midday meal, you know, they're taking a break. Crazy wind picks up and they're buried in the sand. Um, Lots of modern accounts speculate whether that's even possible or not. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into that as well because it's totally fascinating. The likelihood of a a giant desert sandstorm actually engulfing, you know, 100 people, let alone 50,000 people, whether it's possible. But we're going to get into that because it's really Mm. interesting. There's definitely a lot of theories about that. So we, um, I mean, let's, we should probably get into the background on Herodotus a little bit here. Yeah, definitely. So, he's a character, this guy. because I mean, obviously, he's the basis of this entire story. If he hadn't included those, it was it's like less than a paragraph, hey? Like, yeah. And that's the other thing, right? Like his credibility often comes into question because, as you've said, right, he is a man of history. He's also sorry, father of history, father of lies. Right. That that's type of thing. sort of it's, how he's it's known. Often as, debated. Totally. So let's. Mm. We'll, we'll, I'll break down Herodotus and then we'll get into that. Cool. So basically, you know, he. It's important to mention right off the bat, he was not the first Greek in Egypt writing about Egypt. So there was Hecteus, Hecteus of Miletus. <laughs> that is as good as I can do, people. <laughs> Feel free to send us Facebook just, messages just or emails. On, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, you can correct our pronunciation anytime you want. Send, send us in whatever you want. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, Hecteus of Miletus, he was the first one there. He was there in 500 BC, so some 70-ish years before Herodotus. Hmm. Um, so, But he often focused on different things, right? Yeah, he had more of a... Yeah, his, his writing style was slightly different than Herodotus, even mm. though both of them were obviously working in sort of an oral tradition, because... He was the father of Transcribing history. Transcribing oral exactly. into written. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, everything was passed down orally. So, you know, people mm-hmm. criticize him for that, for, for writing in sort of a story format. Mm-hmm. But when you're having these these things relayed to you that way, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's how that's how that's how the thought process worked. <laughs> exactly. I, and, you know, and I think that I don't think that takes away necessarily from the credibility, even no. though sometimes the stories that he wrote were the, some of the things he wrote pretty were pretty, pretty right? outlandish, and yeah. we'll give some examples in a second here. <laughs> but just to put things in perspective, too, like Hecteus of Miletus was there in 500 BC, okay, so 70 years before Herodotus. Just for perspective, the Great Pyramid of Giza is dated around uh, 25, around 2560 BC. So, so two, like two, you know, over 2000 years before Herodotus. That's wild. That's a lot of history. That man. is wild. It's a lot right? of stuff we... And 500 years before... And then he's 500 years before before Christ. It's wild. Right, anyway, we're right. dealing with a lot of... It's it's insane. It's just hard. Like, sometimes, yeah, just the scale of it all, hey? And just the scope, and you're just like... Whoa. It's overwhelming. A little bit. It's a lot. But it's fun. It's fascinating. So anyway, Herodotus. We... Yeah, like you said, father of history, father of lies. Mm-hmm. He's, he's known as both. Definitely um, got some interesting... Interesting accounts of uh, the wildlife. Hey, there was that one story. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the. Do I, you got that? I'm one? gonna I'm gonna give that example in just a sec. Okay. But um, I mean, but yeah, Herodotus. We we don't really know too much about him other than what it, what is written in the histories. He wasn't um, an, he wasn't of a nobility, was he? He had to have been. I mean, like, there's no direct well, the learning. Yeah, the writing. Right. There's no think? direct um, 
reference to him coming from like a super wealthy family or anything like that. But we do know that he was born in uh, a place called Halicarnassus, um, which was a corner of Asia Minor. So I believe that's modern day Turkey. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the idea was that he was definitely upper class. I mean, he had the means to, to travel to travel and to pursue I mean, this as a career. That's like... totally. And he, you know, he, he, he claims to have traveled as far as downstream as the first cataract of the Nile. So mm-hmm. this is, um, you know, in East Africa, I believe. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And, um, and then as far North as the Black Sea. So... But, you know, people doubt the extent of this and whether or not he that just could be an exaggeration traveled himself. part of it and then filled in the rest with accounts from other people or whatever. But anyway, the focus of his work was based around the rise of Persia. So, I mean, he was he was right in it. I mean, he was the guy to mm. go to for, for information on the rise of Persia. The authority on the subject. It's gains. And he basically, he saw the Persian Wars as a conflict between freedom and slavery. Mm. And that sort of idea there is definitely an example of the Greek lens. I mean, he was he was writing from a Greek democratic bias. Mm-hmm. He was hypercritical of Persians and of other peoples, basically. And that's totally understandable. Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't take away from anything, I don't think. Yeah, you can take the, the man out of Greece, but you can't take the Greece out of the man. <laughs> <laughs> the Greece. The Greece, <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's a great quote here from the histories. Um, on what he really wanted to accomplish. So it's basically like, um, how does it go here? What he really wanted to accomplish was take all his fascinations and attempt to unite human and natural phenomena. And in doing so to discover, and in, in doing so he would attempt to discover the casual connection between widely disparate events, Cool. which I think is really cool. And that's also, also kind of <laughs> like what we're trying to do. Definitely. Taking, Yeah. Things that are seemingly unrelated mm-hmm. on this show and tying it, tying it together, trying to make sense of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, super controversial guy, Herodotus. The British Egyptologist Alan Lloyd described him as, um, you know, he, he's, yeah, the father of lies, basically, <laughs> is how he describes him. But at the same time, he also says, quote, Herodotus is our only consecutive account of, Egypt, of Egyptian history between 664 and 525 B.C., so, and for all its faults, it provides a bedrock on which all modern work of the period is based. Exactly. That's pretty profound. That is. So, I mean, that's an Egyptologist. It, it, it obviously is not just storytelling. Mm-hmm. And there's some truth. There's some truth Definitely. hiding in here. So, yeah, controversial dude, though. Um, he, in this, yeah, with, with ancient historians and modern historians. So, it wasn't just, it's not just the modern guys looking back on the histories and saying, this is written with a bias, this is not true, or whatever it may be. Because there were people back in the day, Thucydides was another historian who, who exactly. came after Herodotus. I always think of him when we talk about Herodotus. I feel like they have very similar leanings as far as their um, like realist perspective, in a sense. They don't really refer back to the gods as much. No, very much a, a real, it's a very humanist. Humanist realism. Mm-hmm. Totally. And the difference between that sort of I found interesting reading about Herodotus in comparison to Thucydides was that Thucydides wasn't really critiqued as much. Mm. His account was seen more as, and I guess it's because maybe it was more of a military history specifically. Um, so there was less, less outlandish storytelling. 
But mm-hmm. basically, he wasn't criticized compared to Herodotus, who was. Um, so one of my favorite things that he was called, uh, this word logopios, such a cool word. And I, it's logopios. Greek. It means fable monger. <laughs> so, I mean, there's much worse things to be called than logopios. Man, I mean, he's just trying to work with the material that's given to him. We really, are, like, we are fable mongers in a, in a way. So. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but um, anyway, so yeah. He he was he was a controversial guy, and then even later on after his death, um, a lot of his records that were ended up in Persian archives, they would go people would go back. So there was this king later on named um, Artaxerus II, who's a Persian king, and uh, his record keeper um, would just go in and change Herodotus's accounts to, that... to to change them to favor. And is that the permanent record now? Is that all we have? Or? No, that's not all we have because okay. these, the histories was its own separate thing. Okay. Um, but a lot of the other accounts, they would go in and doctor them because they were not very And there's favorable. also that one, uh, the idea that Darius influenced, Cambyses' successor Darius, the Persian king. Um, yeah, there's definitely some people out there that theorize that basically Herodotus was just spoon-fed the story about this you know, army getting swallowed up in order to sort of cover up for Cambyses' failings. <laughs> yeah. So there's that angle too. Yeah. So you never know. But so anyways, yeah, I got this example here. Yes, I got it. I got it. Yeah. So it's pretty hilarious. So just just to give a frame of reference for some of the outlandish things that Herodotus was uh, getting into, he spends a lot of time in the histories, especially in book well in book three uh, when he's in Egypt on the animals of Egypt and animal husbandry and, you know, the process of burying animals and what they look like and where they're located and all this stuff. So one of the funniest ones is his account of the hippopotamus. So I'm going to read a quote here. My favorite animal. Read a quote here from book two of the histories. So the hippopotamus is is sacred in the district of Paprimus, but not elsewhere. This animal has four legs. All right. So so far, so good. Hippos have four legs. All right. Mm -hmm. This animal has four legs, cloven hooves like an ox, a snub nose, a horse's mane and tail, conspicuous tusks, a voice like a horse's neigh, and it's about the size of a very large ox. (laughs) I thought there was something with stripes in there too, no? There's other... There's other translations of the histories that kind of have some other additional weird... That's a weird description of a hippopotamus. That makes you wonder. I wonder if whether you ever not... saw an elephant. Do you think you ever saw an elephant? I don't. I don't know. But I mean, I feel like hippos and elephants have really similar feet. They're both massive, obviously, and that's sort of the biggest discrepancy here. Because um, just as a frame of reference, hippos, uh, a male hippo that would have lived in the Nile at that time, the Lower Nile, can weigh up to nine thousand pounds. The heaviest ox ever reported modern times is 3,000 pounds. That's a 6,000 pound difference. So whether or not this guy actually saw a hippopotamus is definitely up for debate. Mm -hmm. But people will take things like that from the histories and say, yeah, I don't know if this guy was actually there. Mm -hmm. And when you read something like that, that's fair. But then there's a bunch of other things that he did get right. Um, The location of temples, the the birth process um mm-hmm. in region to region the you know different um religious rite ceremonies and things like that because he was learning from low-level priests and so right. so they didn't know it all themselves right exactly they're passing along the best they can but that's just an example of some of the craziness you know and he references some other things too whoever's and, and 
to all of you listening out there, get the histories and read it or browse through it. It's fascinating. It's, it's a good read. It's it not is. hard. No. Like, because we both read... Um, Thucydides. Yes, we read Thucydides in school. And it was difficult. It was painful. Like, we were reading the side notes, mostly. We weren't even reading the actual text, (laughs) just so we actually knew. But this is incredible. The edition we have is, what is it? It's by Penguin Classics? Yeah, Penguin Classics. Yeah, and it is is fascinating. It's just this awesome narrative. It just goes on and on. So much history. I mean, he's referencing things like giant ants that dig gold. He he makes references to men with the heads of dogs and Mm -hmm. things like that. And those are definitely examples of working within an oral tradition and kind of exactly. adding a little uh adding a little pizzazz to uh, mm-hmm. some of his his prose i guess or whatever you want to call exactly. it so with all this like questioning of his credibility in relation to the actual myth that we're discussing on the program today right. i feel like he didn't really exaggerate it that much i feel like it's almost like this weird afterthought of a passage that's kind of just thrown in there mm-hmm. it's sandwiched right in between um the tale of the ethiopian king and the Apis Bull incident, um, which is another one that we definitely want to talk about in relation to Kembisi's psychological instability. Right. Not to like, well, maybe we should just go into that. Yeah. Okay. Let's. Yeah. Let's. Let's get into the Mad Kembisi's aspect first, and then go and then go back to the story because I think mm-hmm. that's that definitely ties into it. Definitely. Um, just to paint a better picture of who this guy was. Definitely. And the way that he went about things as king, <laughs> some of it is highly questionable. I mean, um, yeah, Herodotus makes, ca- like, numerous references to him does. not being of sound mind. Exactly. And I think you have He's, a few of them there. He says, yeah, if he hadn't lost his mind already, then this is another example just to further prove that point. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, he does have a few um, interesting examples. Um, one that I pulled out was the fact that Cambyses... This is not something that is conventional for either Egyptians or Persians at that time or even after that or before, I don't think. But essentially, Cambyses one day um, decided that he was in love with his sister. So anyways, he went to his like advisors, his his own priests, whatever, just to, just to ask them, right. is there any law that prevents me from marrying my sister? And um, these guys, knowing what kind of a dude this Cambyses was, he, he definitely would... Oh my gosh, he would, yeah, just... He probably would have just murdered them if he... You know, if they, if they didn't no. tell, yeah, yeah, exactly. If they didn't tell him what he wanted to hear, yeah. So essentially, they um, were very vague, but they said, "Oh, we can't think of any law that would not permit this, but we n- do know a law that basically, whatever the king wants, the king gets." Yeah. <laughs> is what they tell him. Yeah. The so he goes and marries whatever. her. He ends up marrying two of his sisters. Actually, kills them both out of um, just spite, <laughs> mostly. Just casual. Just yeah. cash, you know. Whatever. <laughs> he, he took them with him to um, the. Egyptian campaigns and all that. Right. So they were with him at the time. And he also took his brother. So he was he was the okay. eldest of two brothers. So his little brother's name was Smyrtus. We've already covered that. Also known as Burita. Um, he was a guy that definitely... Yeah, he was on the Egyptian campaign as well. There's the, the drawing the bow incident sent away. Essentially, um, there was another prophecy, right? Where um, Cambyses, or was it a dream? I think it was a dream he had where he basically saw his brother sitting on his throne. That's what it was, a story of a dream. With his head touching the sky Yeah, is how it's described. And so thinking that essentially his brother is going to usurp his throne from him, he sends his most trusted, his name's Persaxpis, his most trusted friend on the campaign after him to essentially assassinate him. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's the kind of guy we're working with here. I guess a lot of people were murdering their brothers back in the day, though, right? It was kind of the It was thing just a power do. struggle. Definitely. Maybe. I mean, no Who big knows? deal, right? Yeah, so, but with his two sisters, which is just, it's such a funny dynamic, right? Could you imagine? Imagine being Smurdus, where here's your brother. He's this, like, crazy dude that basically does whatever he wants without any thought as to the consequence. And then you have your two sisters that you both grew up with married to him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way... The way that, we, that'd be a very weird dynamic, I feel like. The way we can picture it now... I guess, yeah, I, I guess, modern day, that would be weird. I wonder what, weird. what the, fa- the the whole family dynamic would be in yeah. an ancient royal family. It'd be wild. Yeah. So essentially, after this whole Smurtis thing happens, um, <laughs> there's this account that Herodotus, it's in, yeah, book three, I believe, where he tells of this one... I don't know, there's this one day where... Cambyses takes a baby, like a, a puppy, and he takes a baby lion, like a lion cub, and he pits them together in a fight to the to the death, out of entertainment. And he's sitting there with his sister slash wife, and his sister starts crying um, because the puppy is suffering. And actually, okay, but even before she starts crying, um, the puppy, I guess he had a couple of siblings, and the siblings start, like, diving into the fight because the puppy's getting the worst of it out of, you know... Puppy, lion cub, who's going to win? Probably, yeah. probably the lion cub. But anyway, so the brothers jump in of this puppy and they start to like, you know, and it gets a little more intense and the, and the girl starts crying, his sister. And so Kempisi's asks her, like, why are you crying? And she says, basically, so this is after Smurtis was sent away. She says, I cry because you, you are like, you know, as my lord, you would have no brother to come to your aid. And so it's kind of uh, like this, like, little jab, right? Yeah, definitely. And so he just, he's like, nope, sorry, you're out here. <laughs> Executed. Yeah. Done. So there there you go. There's a little bit of an anecdote there. Um, let's see. What else do we have as far as his psychological... Oh, oh, the Prazaxpis account. That's another one, hey? So the same guy that was sent to assassinate Smyrtis, he... <laughs> this is back in Persia, mind you. This is before the Egyptian campaigns. Okay. And he, one day, um, Cambyses and him are in the court and Cambyses casually asks him about the the perception of himself with the Persian people and whether he's revered, whether he's liked, whether he's feared, whatever. And um, trying to appease the king, I can't remember what Prozaxvis says exactly, but he basically says that they, they adore you, whatever. And I don't even know, Cambyses, I feel like he was just looking for a way to kind of just I feel like he was just a spiteful kind of guy that just wanted to just get under people's skin. Well, that's and just, definitely the way that's definitely the way that's that Herodotus sets it up. Just out of nowhere. Yeah. He he tells Perzaxpus, he says, I'm gonna shoot your son with this arrow. If it pierces his heart, that means you're right. But if it doesn't pierce his heart, that means you were lying to me. And so he does. He just literally takes his arrow, boom, shoots the guy right in the heart, kills him, this young the son of Perzaxpus, sort of his most trusted for... friend. <laughs> And then they um, immediately ripped into his, like, you know, his chest. They pull out the arrow. It had pierced right through the heart. So he's satisfied. Uh, right. And so anyways, and then he says, oh, look at that. And then uh, basically, <laughs> Prisaxpus has no, he has no other um, option but to say, yeah. exactly, right? Except to say, well, you are, you are, you know, you are God and, or not God, you're king. Well, they were gods. I mean, they well, were, they, they definitely kings, were yeah. the connection to the gods anyway. Definitely. And your word is the word, and that's the way it is. Now, I mean, of course, the element to all this is, like we said before, Herodotus was, you know, the Greeks and Persians weren't exactly buds 
throughout the centuries. No. And um, obviously there was the Greek and Persian Wars that mm-hmm. I think would, that would follow this and, and proceeded as well. Uh, but he had a very Greek bias. So he's not going to, he's not going to Essentially at the favorably. time of Herodotus' writings, um, Egypt was under Persian control under Darius. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because okay. there was a few years of revolt after Cambyses' death. Okay. And then essentially what happens is Darius wrangles up the empire. And kind of gets Because all the peripheries, once, you know, like this sort of like instability occurs, there's this account of a false king that comes after Cambyses, which we should definitely dive into as well. Oh, for sure. And then Darius essentially seizes the throne. Um, basically, he's the one that came up with the term Achaemenid, right? Because before that, it was... Cyrus never even um, aligned himself with... Ac- oh, what's his name? Achaemenes, I believe? Achaemenes. Achaemenes. And these names are this... so cool. <laughs> I know, right? He was basically the an ancient Persian that they're just basically like hearkening back to as some sort of I like see. line of ancestry that's like royal. For sure. So that makes anyway, sense. So Darius, he himself has no royal blood. He is nobility, but he's not. So anyways, that was just his attempt or it is interpreted by a lot of academics and researchers today as just his attempt to consolidate his legitimacy and his authority. Right. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's get back to the, the, the story itself. Mm-hmm. So the because <clears throat> there's definitely some um, inconsistencies with the idea that the fifty thousand men were sent to destroy the oracle. There's also the idea that um, that the West was simply just a strategic tr- stronghold for trade, right. that type of thing. There was the land, <laughs> so funny, the lands of Kush that were gold mines, like they they were mining gold literally. Right. And so that was incredibly important, um, along with other other resources, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, he had a reason to go there besides just mm-hmm. to destroy an oracle. Exactly. For sure. Um, but I think the fact that Herodotus is a Greek, writing with from a Greek lens, is important. Because this whole madman Cambyses thing, you know, there's other later, later accounts, Egyptian accounts, that we came across, where... The Egyptians kind of, you know, they didn't really hate Cambyses necessarily. No. Like, there's lots of accounts where it's, he was almost seen as an Egyptian, and yes. he wasn't. He wasn't, and um, he didn't disrupt all their right. um, rituals, their you know, their practices, that type of thing. Like right. Herodotus seems to like convey in his account. Yeah, because that's where we come back to the Apis Bull incident, right? Where essentially this comes right on the cusp of the vanishing army in the book, and. Essentially, what happens is there's this bull that's born, and it's just this special calf, and it is the what the Egyptians take to be um, a manifestation of the god Apis. So that's why it's called the Apis bull. Right. Anyways, and it's a special bull. Essentially, the cow that gives birth to this calf um, is never able to have another calf again, is how it's described. And it's always a black calf with know. a bit of a, a white on its head. And it's, I don't know, it's just, yeah, so it has a very distinct look about it. And um, essentially what happens is after this missing, the army goes missing, um, Cambyses is still in Memphis, um, the Egyptians start to celebrate, they're having all these, like, yeah, like, they're in the streets, they're having festivities, and he's like, what the heck is going on here? Why didn't you guys do this the first time when I defeated and rode into Memphis? Like, what? why is this going on right now? And so the priests then convey to Cambyses that 
essentially this apis bull has just been born and Cambyses laughs at this in Herodotus' account. He says, oh, your, your gods are made of blood and flesh. They can feel the, the pierce of my, uh, of my steel sword or right. whatever. And then that's when he ends up stabbing this apis bull. And he slips. He means to stab him right through the heart, like right in the middle. But he ends up only like nicking his calf or something or his thigh. Bad aim. Which is, it, it is a fatal injury. The calf ends up, ends up dying like seven, seven days later, ten days later. I don't know. Something like that. So, and at the same time, I feel like, I don't even know if this Apis Bull is just more of a fable of Cambyses, because it isn't conveyed in other Egyptian texts, and it isn't, it just seems like a clean ending for him in relation to Cambyses' death, because he ends up dying in Herodotus' account by his own sword, right? He ends up, he's jumping on his horse trying to get back to Persia to deal with this supposed coup or whatever, and he jumps on the horse and his the shaft of his like you know like his protective thing for his sword breaks and yeah. it pierces his thigh he ends up getting gangrene dying like two weeks later that type of thing makes that dead be- deathbed confession that he killed smurtis and or no he didn't kill smurtis but he sent chrysaxis to assassinate yeah. him it's kind of yeah, his confession and then that's where we kind of get into that bit of a murky area with the whole yeah brother I mean... and yeah, the whole, the, the yeah, Darius coming in, but it's, exactly. uh, and there's obviously, there's, um, different accounts of whether or not he killed himself or if he died of gangrene, obviously in Herodotus's account, that's what it is. In um, the Byzantine inscription, that's the official record that Darius, um, inscribes as, as king of Persia. He, he's very, very vague. And all he says is that Cambyses died his own death is how it's yeah translated a lot of the time and it's been mistranslated yeah misinterpreted for sure as as a suicide when in reality it's probably more likely it was an accident i feel like kibbisi's yeah from what we read i feel like he's not really a suicidal type probably i feel like he's more like a megalomaniacal type of whatever like like he's well say let's let's backtrack Mm. a little bit here because we're getting uh, ahead of ourselves yeah we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves let's get back to the 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 actual event itself so they and the likelihood of 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 this even this campaign even beginning in the first place i feel like the way that herodotus accounts for it you know sending out this fifty thousand troops in haste destroy the oracle not thinking ahead too much other than the the one point we made about possibly having a agreement with the arabian king king. Mm -hmm. but you know he describes herodotus as this irrational guy this madman Mm -hmm. yet he he pulled his troops back from ethiopia you know, he pulled them back. He made that, he, he said... Yeah, he didn't say, just keep going until you get there, then you'll get fed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He, he, you know, he had... That he, just shows he has a little bit of rationality. Exactly. He was of sound bit. enough mind that I wouldn't he say could... he has a heart, but I would say, yeah, he's maybe more so just as far as preserving his own image as king. Right? Sure, yeah, regardless of what it is. I mean, he, he had the wherewithal enough to at least be like, eating each other is probably not the best thing for me. Mm-hmm. Let's pull back and regroup. Yeah. He never makes so another excursion. To though. suggest that he would make that decision on the one hand, but then on the other hand say, for you know, screw it. Let's send fifty thousand troops into the desert mm-hmm. and hope for the best, and they never come back. It just seems like that would be that would be a strange decision to make after make after 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 having a rational choice of pulling your troops back from Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, he did have ambitions in the West, and 
you know, maybe it's just the number 50,000 is misreported or whatever. And mm-hmm. we've come across accounts where, you know, modern day historians basically say, Take cut a zero, zero or two or two or more or whatever it may be <laughs> to make it a more mm-hmm. reasonable number. But five, 15,000 troops, 5,000 troops, you know, 500 troops. That's still, that's still insane. That's putting up real numbers. There. That's putting up real numbers. Mm-hmm. So let's, um, let's, uh, Let's get into the um, some of the accounts. You want to get into some of the accounts? Yeah. Are we diving into the the theories or? I mean, we can. Let's get into the theories because they definitely tie into some of the critiques of Herodotus as we go here. So the way that I kind of structured this when I was going yeah through the contemporary accounts, basically there's two lines of thought regarding the fate of the army as far as like you know. There's the first line of thought, which was basically, yes, this army was swallowed up by a sea of sand. There's a second line of thought we can discuss after that. But most of the theories that we've come across do revolve around trying to find a bunch of bones in the desert. Yeah, that they did get sent out, that they were between the um, the first oasis and the Siwa oasis. So essentially between um, Karga and Siwa. Right. Mm-hmm. That somewhere in that section of desert, there is a cache of bones and swords and, to be and found all the armor all the supplies the yeah everything right and so that's what be, people it would have be been... one of the most important archaeological discoveries of multiple centuries essentially oh, it, is how it's been described absolutely it mm-hmm. would be wild mm-hmm. if that was legitimately found and 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 you know the egyptian department of antiquities or whatever would actually be like you know do do <laughs> an evaluation council of the supreme council who are <laughs> who are let's just say they're they're difficult to deal with they're very opaque they don't release a lot of uh, information i was looking on their website and it kind of reminds me of just the egyptian government in general well it's 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 an arm of the egyptian government (laughs) well that's exactly yeah yeah Yeah. i guess we could talk about that a different day but anyways all right so so let's get into okay so the first line of thought the first line of thought the first go for it so first modern day account that we were able to find in relation to the search comes from the 19 or sorry the 1800s yeah. this guy Berzoni. 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 i believe he was i think he was he Italian, wasn't he British. wasn't outright looking for the army well no he was just an egyptologist um okay. he definitely he definitely raided and took away some uh, very prized um, discoveries that probably should have just remained in situ. But uh, yeah, that was typical of the 1800s. That was before the Supreme Council of Antiquities was formed. I believe that was in the 1830s or 40s, okay. and just so they could rein in because there was a lot of looting, a lot of raiding yeah. of these sacred sites and whatever. Which is such a shame. It really is to think of what 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 could have been. been found and. Mm-hmm. And what's yeah. been lo- what's on the black market now these days? I wonder. Hey? Yeah. But anyway, so there was this guy Belzoni, and um, yeah, fruitless attempt. Never found anything. No remains. No nothing. Okay. So the next attempt came in the 1930s. Laszlo Almazi or Almazi. I've heard both. Yeah, Almazi. Almazi. I feel like Almazi is better. Now but this anyways. guy's fascinating, and I I did not make the connection. Uh, I, I mean, I did after reading a little bit, but mm-hmm. I had never read The English Patient or seen the movie The I English didn't Patient. I didn't even know it was a book. I yeah. it was just a movie. I, yeah, it's, which is with Ralph Fiennes. So, yeah. Which is, it's, yeah. It, it's, kind watch of, it. it's kind of funny. It, it's one of those things. It's like with this story, you know, we start researching it and then we realize how mainstream some of this yeah. stuff is. 
Um, but we'd never There's heard of it of before. There's yeah. a lot of connections. So, but this Laszlo Almasi guy, he, Almasi, yeah. he was 1930s, correct? Yeah. He was a Hungarian fellow. Um, he made about, well, he made numerous trips to Africa. Um, I think he made three excursions in particular to the Libyan desert. He's actually been credited with, um, coming up with the modern way to actually traverse sand dunes in a vehicle right he yeah because he had the model the t exactly and, uh, so the model t grip. um he would like we've seen images of this and video clips of him basically going up over the top and down over the other side it looks like fun it's actually like yeah that would take a lot of <laughs> a lot of talent a lot of patience for all the times he gets stuck hey true, anyways yeah and he pioneered the method where essentially like you go, you go straight up and then straight down the dune, and then you have to speed up at the very bottom in order to stop yourself from getting stuck in that little right at the the bottom, the of base. The hill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, yeah, very interesting fellow. And he wasn't looking for the lost army either. Though. He was looking uh, for the lost city of Zerzura, though, correct? Well, that's kind of a little bit. Yeah, he was he was looking for both. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he had a. And Zerzura, just so everyone out there listening knows, is a Zerzura. ancient mythological city, it's called the White City. The White City of Zerzura. Um, lost in the Sahara, and that is uh, going to be a future episode, so exactly. stay tuned for that. Definitely. Um, yes, yeah, so he was looking for that. He was looking for the Lost Army. He made inroads into the approximate location that he thought the army would be, and he did report that to a colleague, but okay. basically took that to the grave. He didn't go into any more details, and... Yeah, the guy was actually interviewed. Doesn't in that, that just do- seem that to happen a lot, though? Like with yeah. all these stories where someone just takes it to the grave. Wouldn't you want to just write it on a sticky note or something right before well, you, have you to die? Wonder. Maybe, maybe li- it was and just got lost or something. Possibly. But anyways, yeah. So he, yeah, he he never actually found anything. I I feel like the in pots. That... He found the pottery, right? Mm. Or was that a was that a misattributed? Find. I honestly feel like that might have been a misattributed find from mm. the documentary, right? That one about Bowen and um, that Gail McKinnon, the the geologist and the anthropologist. It's such a hokey documentary. Totally. But, but it is interesting. It does give some insight into modern attempts from the last 20 years, you know? Because they went out there mm-hmm. in 2002, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I did come across multiple... Um, resources that did attribute the the pottery at the base of a hill basically there was all those water pot water jugs and they did attribute a few sources that i found did attribute that to almasi mm-hmm. um and basically that it was yeah possibly re- i mean this is very similar to the castiglione uh found pots too and some other things too that we'll get into in a sec but mm-hmm. the the agreement that uh, that Cambyses had with the Arabian king matches up with this find mm-hmm. and that there's water pots along the route that they would have been taking to get to Siwa mm-hmm. and they're at the base of a hill so that makes sense if they were resting for uh, the night or whatever it may be that's obviously the only place where you can find shelter in the desert is at this base of a hill um, to protect mm. yourself from the wind that's or actually whatever. interesting because there are later later researchers that claim there was this rock, this big old rock that was found by the Castiglione brothers in their 90s. All right, we'll, we'll get to Castiglione anyway, in a yeah, second. Yeah, so that, so it's even debated whether, like, I don't even know if Laszlo Almazi, because, like, his main, his main sort of um, modus operandi for being in the Libyan desert was to find the city. I feel like the army was sort of a side note. 
And I feel like it might have even his, like, you know, his approximate location of the army. I feel like that might have actually been um, talking about the White City. Because okay. he did find, he found apparently um, this valley that was, it was written in ancient accounts and it was very accurate. Like, the way he found it was very similar to these accounts. Right. Anyway, so maybe that's what he was talking about. Maybe he never even... Anyways. Could have been. I mean, we'll have to... That's going to... We'll, we'll touch on that in that's a later episode on Zero Zero. That's another that just adds to the whole schmoz. But... <laughs> Definitely. So, <laughs> after, after Al Masi, though, in the 1930s, later in the 1930s, there's another guy by the name of Wingate, right? Yeah, Ord Wingate. British officer. He served in Ethiopia and Sudan. And, yeah, he did lead an expedition in 1933. No findings. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, and this is, the, this is what comes up over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And this is why, again, the reason why I'm, I was blown away that I'd never heard of this story because people have been searching for these bones for this lost army for centuries. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a lot of it's fruitless. I mean, obviously it's going to be pretty tough to, I mean, and any excavation in the Sahara is going to be But that's just tough. it, right? Because it's just, it's it's a constantly changing landscape with no markers. There's no mountains around. Everything just is constantly shifting. Yeah. The mountains and the, the, of sand. Exactly. The I mean, there's some... Sand. I heard accounts where basically they can shift from 30 to 50 feet in a year, depending on the, like, you know, the way the winds blow. That, that is wild. Thing. Eh? So it's constantly just uncovering stuff and covering others up. So you just, you don't know. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Okay. So he was kind of a, that, that was just another, just an example of someone looking for it. Exactly. Later again, still 1930s, um, we've got Gary Chaffetz. Is that right? No. Or was that later on? No, no. Chaffetz. Oh, he he was, came he... around in the 1980s. Okay. He started doing recon missions in 1982. He made approximately three trips into his search area, which was approximately, I believe it was 70 miles south of the Siwa Oasis. So this was a six-month expedition that this guy headed. He's an author, a journalist. He led this expedition in partnership with Harvard University and National Geographic Society. So this is a legit expedition. It is definitely legit. They spent, they had a budget of a quarter million dollars. For back then, I mean, $250,000 in 1982 is not peanuts. Yeah, exactly. And they, so yeah, they had a, they had a good team. They had, um... Strong human talent included over 20 Egyptian archaeologists. They had, um, what's it called? Like a light aircraft and ground penetrating um, radar. Right. Which I'm assuming is the 1980s version of today's LIDAR that we've seen used, that we read about in the Monkey God book. Yeah, to find the lost city, the the, the white city. That's another white city. I know, right? That's that's... what, yeah, when I came across it, I was like, huh, all these white cities popping up everywhere. What's up with that? Anyways, popping up. <laughs> or never popping up. Yeah, never. We can't find them. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, they're just popping up everywhere. It's... Popping up. So this guy, he, the only thing he ever found was basically like a, an ancient caravan trail with these like cairns is how he described it. And okay. some of these cairns had human remains in them. What is a cairn? That's basically just um, a big pot. Yeah. Yeah. And there was like these, what he described as burial mounds too. And there was fragments of bone in those. Um, yeah, so essentially, they dated those. Um, it's not the right time, time frame, sorry. It was 1,500 approximately years ago. So it would need ah. to be another, tack on another 1,000 years. So not t- the right time frame. Okay. Still interesting, though. Um, and still possibly could have been a route 
It I mean, it still could have been along the same route that they were taking. Yeah. And that's a whole An part of this controversy is whether or not they were on that path or exactly. not. And we'll get to that in a sec. Exactly. But. So essentially what happened to wrap up this Chavetz um, guy, he, yeah, he did this six month expedition, not finding much. He did find some things, but definitely not 50,000 people buried in the sand. Right. And he was actually banned from returning to Egypt uh, by the Egyptian government because... Classic. Yeah. Well, I don't really blame them for this. It, it's just diplomacy, that type of thing. Essentially what he did is he violated um, Libyan airspace oh, repeatedly, right. landing in Libya, doing his recon missions, doing this this um this, this radar it's ground penetrating radar so he's in a plane and anyways how would you how would you know like you're like this is there's nothing around like how would, there's no line in the sand saying this is libya and that's egypt like yeah. you know but anyways we know nothing about air travel and exactly airspace, and so really, he was so actually <laughs> he was in some serious doo-doo for a little bit like he was interrogated for i think 24 hours by the egyptian authorities Yeesh, that'd be scary essentially he was let go in return for um surrendering his aircraft <laughs> <laughs> and it's sitting in an Egyptian museum to this day really? with, with a sign that says um, confiscated from an, or no, from a, I think from an Israeli spy. Is oh my gosh. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Israeli. That was what, anyways. Yeah. So it's just. That's crazy. Weird. Right. So this is back, that would have been like 30, 40 years ago. It's wild stuff. That's actually crazy. 40 years ago. The 80s. No. Am I, am I saying that right? No. That's like 30 years. A long time ago. Long time ago. <laughs> it's um, still sitting We are there. not mathematicians. Okay. No. <laughs> um, so, but, okay, so that was 1980s and... So, the Chevettes, yeah, he was never satisfied. He actually did write a book, though. Did he? Yes. We he didn't wrote a book. Um, no, we never picked it up. I do have it somewhere in my research notes. Essentially, it's, it's a novelization of his account and, um, yeah, definitely an interesting read. Yeah. I would want to read that, um... Haven't had a chance to yet, but definitely want to get around to it. So so far, just just to just to recap, so far mm. these the the modern accounts of the search or just people you know Searching excavating the in the Sahara that have found things that might be that have to taken it. um can, or canvases they've taken her artist's account to heart right yeah mm. and and so far you know obviously the Shafet's um, artifacts didn't date properly but. Um, the fact that there was a caravan route uh, route there, I think, you know, lends to the legitimacy of Herodotus's account, potentially, mm-hmm. that there were these routes there and it wasn't just like this, you know, head off into the desert. There's no path. Just make your own path. Head over to that massive sand hill and just keep heading mm-hmm. northwest. You know, they had maybe a little bit more to go off of, even though they weren't, you know, they hadn't been in Egypt for a very long time, the Persians. And so they weren't exactly experts on the terrain. No. But they did have the ability, obviously, to um, consult with locals. Or, yeah, have guides. Right? And that's not mentioned. So it's like, I, I mm-hmm. definitely think that they would have had the wherewithal to figure out their best route. You know, and even if it was a very impromptu, and, and even just thinking out, about strategics, um, this will come up again in another theory. But there's the idea that why would they take this route through the oases when they were all controlled by Egyptians? They would have had to have fight, fought their way through each one presumably. in order to get, because there was two. There was two oases. There was the Dakla oases and the Karga oases. I don't even know if they went to the Dakla one to be honest. I think they went straight from Thebes to Karga. Yeah. So they skipped over that, but they would have had to have fought there, which, which is another theory. 
were you know, discussing with that Professor Olaf Copper. Right. And that is related to the second line of thought. All right, well, let's get to the Castiglione brothers here. Because <laughs> these guys are... Let's get to the are... real entertainment here. Yeah, this is, this is the... Um... <laughs> this is pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so starting... these guys... Yeah, 1996 to 2009. Yep. Castiglione's two Italian brothers. So give a little background on these guys. I mean, their first film. Well, they they call themselves archaeologists. Right. Several of the newspaper reports that we saw on them basically refer to them as top archaeologists in their field, which is right. Just uh, you know, kind of gets your radar up there. Hey, you're just like. But they're but basically yeah. So they call themselves archaeologists, but they they are they're filmmakers. They were filmmakers, they right? So their first movie was, I believe, in 1969, 68, 69. They're all in the Mondo theme. So right. essentially what that is is an exploitative documentary type uh, or style of film. Shock value. It's a shock value film. It usually, um, the subjects are usually either foreign cultures or just taboo things, stigma related, whatever. So it could be, like, there was ones that were exclusively focused on death that was kind of a resurgence in the 80s yeah which is just really creepy it usually takes real footage too it's not Eesh. it's not like so things like suicides and murders and yeah. autopsies that weird lovely, weird stuff lovely stuff but before that the idea of mondo was closely related to yeah like um exploitating foreign cultures so these castiglionis what was the name of the film did you did you mark that down or? it's called secret africa secret africa yeah. So you get to see um, Actually, they adult did, circumcision. In they that. did multiple <laughs> films that would translate to the same title, Secret oh, okay. Africa, throughout so the like years. A series they, did. they would just keep going back and and uh, <laughs> yeah, doing these shock value films. So obviously, mm-hmm. this takes away a little bit potentially from their credibility, but also they're just making movies. So it it's is the what 70s, it is. Seventies man. This what is seventies? Yeah, sixty seventies. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, these guys. So later on, this is in the nineties. Yeah, they're in Egypt. They're in Egypt. They do follow the idea that the the army did um, pursue the the oracle and they did go west, but they kind of take a different route. So they had the idea that the army did not take this um, well-used caravan route that basically went from oasis to oasis, as most researchers tend to believe. Okay. They believe that instead they came from the south and tried to sort of um, take the oasis by surprise. So it says here, hmm. Castiglione's reckon that Cambyses' army must have taken a different route from Thebes into the desert than the one explored by earlier generations. Um, geological surveys they conducted over a new stretch of terrain further afield from the old caravan track revealed dried up wells and pieces of earthenware pottery from Persian water pots. Persian water pots. So that's how you know. <laughs> Anyways, and then it says here, um, the army may have taken this alternative path through the desert in order to surprise the defenders of the Amon Temple at Siwa Oasis, right. but were stopped short due to the unforgiving Sahar- Saharan Kamsin wind. That was a quote hmm. from Time article dated November 17th, 2009. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, there's another article by Seeker dated in 2012 that discusses the finds including pottery human remains a bronze dagger and arrow tips found all around this large rock that i mentioned earlier right mm-hmm. so this rock um they hypothesize it could have been used as a shelter for the troops once this big sandstorm flew up yeah and this is further supported by um these silver spheres that were thought to be from a necklace of persian origins and an earring that was found a quarter mile away from the rock so yeah it was about 35 meters long so that's about 114 feet long and then 
1.8 meters or nine sorry 5.9 feet high okay so that would that would shelter a grown man if he was definitely yeah five foot nine i would just weren't people shorter back then anyway (laughs) (laughs) yeah ancient people (laughs) way to to make me feel good standing five foot nine (laughs) unless you're talking about ancient giants yeah ancient ancient giants six six foot four (laughs) starting point guard in the nba so anyways, um, they did date these finds um, to the Achaemenid Empire using visual assessment of an expert on ancient jewelry, and they also did thermoluminescence on the ceramics that they found. Okay. So those were dated to about 2,500 years ago, which is the right time. That fits it. So that's an interesting theory. I yeah. mean, they definitely come at it from a different angle, for sure. Um, yeah, this is interesting. Okay, this is another quote here from the same article. It says here, according to Castiglione from El Carga... So the Carga Oasis, the army took a westerly route to the Gilf, Gilf El Kabir, passing through the Wadi Abd El Malik, <laughs> and then headed north. So they went, they went kind of like in a U shape is right. kind of the description. Well, that makes um, sense because then they can go ar- along here, the Nile a little bit exactly. and then come up and loop around and that gives them a little bit more of a, exactly. so, of an easier. So with this route... They had the advantage of taking the enemy back. And then it says here, moreover, the army could march undisturbed. Because ah. since the oasis on the other route were controlled by Egyptians, the army would have had to have fought at each oasis. So anyways, yeah, they did this. Um, yeah, they found the water sources and the artificial wells and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah. Anyways, so there was, yeah, I don't know. So that's what their thinking was. And they did find all these artifacts and things, which they say they surrendered to the Egyptian authorities with no word back. Curious, Very curious. right? Very and curious. there was a press release from, I think that was dated from 2009, from the Supreme Council of Antiquities, basically discrediting all their work and saying that they didn't have any permits and none of their finds can be taken as legitimate or real. So, Which is unfortunate. It is very unfortunate for them. <laughs> Whether or not that's actually a, a, a real thing or not. Because mm-hmm. it's like, it's kind of funny because it's like, if someone who didn't have a permit stumbled upon a temple yeah. or a tomb, no one's going to say, that's not legit. You have to leave like, everything as is though and then report it, it and because th- you don't, you need right. the permits to dig. You no, for sure. For sure. But I'm saying like, obviously with something that is a fixture in place. It's different than in like an arrowhead. If you move it, the context leaves. Well, exactly. Or if it's something else, you could actually, mm-hmm. you know, but it also would be pretty hard to, I mean, so this was just, I mean, yeah, the first things they found, there was like the arrowhead and the dagger, mm-hmm. the, um, there was a the few. The bronze age dagger, yeah. Yeah, the bronze age dagger. The jewelry. The jewelry. And they, and then, okay, and this is another thing too, because part of their team involved a couple of Egyptians this guy, Dr. Ali Barakat, who is described as a geologist in some accounts. He's described as an anthropologist in other accounts. So, I don't know. According to his um, Wikipedia, or sorry, not Wikipedia, his, um, like, LinkedIn, he's a geologist. His LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there was the other guy, Walid Ramadan, who was the guide to the expedition. This is an interesting character, Ramadan. We're going to get back to him in relation to the documentary we watched. Okay. The 2002 documentary. But anyways, one other thing I want to mention before we move away from the Castiglione's and their finds of these um, these wells and these water pots, these Persian water pots. Yeah. Um, I just want to make the connection just to say that these finds echo the radar findings of Chevette's in the 80s. Right. right? 
very similar. Yeah. And they were in very sim- They were literally 30 miles away from one another. So I'm not sure. Like, obviously. And they dated to the right time. Exactly. So that, so that definitely adds mm-hmm. to the idea that, yeah, that caravan route mm-hmm. very well could have been used. It is funny, too, because there is a Huffington Post article written by Gary S. Chavetz um, dating to 2009, um, approximately two weeks after all these new release news releases were made about the Castiglione fines, which is kind of confusing in a sense, too, because they were conducting these apparently over the course of over a decade. You're right. And anyways, there's so much ambiguity and just contradiction surrounding when things were found and how they were dealt with and then just you know putting together the chronology that is one of the most frustrating things with tackling a ancient mystery it's a lot different than a modern mystery where you can and dealing with characters that aren't very scrupulous because these archaeologists huge air quotes there (laughs) um they didn't even present their findings in an academic research paper they made a movie and released it at a film festival and that is not academic (laughs) no and i kind of want to track that down (laughs) i want to see what that's all about well we did try to look for it a little bit it was tough to find i mean it's definitely it's going to be in italian presumably and out there somewhere but uh, we'll have to get it translated to Mm -hmm. so they've been highly criticized chavetz remains uber critical of these two um, calls them shockumentarians dating back to, yeah, their 1970s, whatever. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so he basically writes them off, as do other academics, because of their methodologies. Okay. Yes. So there's one other thing we need to cover um, related to this line of thought. Okay. Which is the documentary. Right. Yeah. So this documentary, was 2002 documentary, um, we it was watched titled it The Lost the other Army day. of Cambyses. The, I will be including in the show notes a link to that. We're so, going to be including all of our exactly. all of our references in the Definitely. in the show notes, so you guys can go and check out all of the things yes. that we've looked through, all the books that we've got, um, from, yeah, from our library and you know online sources that type of thing. Maps we want to include too, just so you have a better reference point as to Absolutely. the oases we're talking about and all this stuff. Totally. Yeah. Sorry. Excuse that. Bert. <clears throat> So, uh, but the, after Castiglione, yeah, we've got this 2002 documentary and the... That was inspired by their finds. That was of, insp- of just the dagger and the two arrowheads. Did they make, I can't remember, did they make a specific reference to the Castiglionis? No. They not, did not. Not outright. Yeah. What they did, though, is in the very, very beginning, they talk about, yeah, how in the 80s there was, like, a resurgence of interest in it and that there was this, um... Supposedly, yeah, there were some findings supposedly that were highly contested. They don't say who found them. So I'm assuming they're talking about the Castiglionis. Yeah. And the only guy that they refer to that was actually from that original expedition is this Walid Ramadan, the guide. So, uh, so yeah, let's get into this. All right. We got some some little bit of a hokey character in this. Um, what's yeah. his name? Tom. Tom Brown. Tom. Tom Bone. A bone, rather. There's no R. Pardon me. It's Brown without the R. Tom Bone. Bone. Um, and, um, and his assistant or partner, or whatever you want to call her, um, Gail McKinnon, the resident skeptic. Yeah. So we watched this We watched this it's documentary. It's a 48-minute documentary. I mean, I'd say it's worth a watch. Definitely. Um, it, it's, it's very inconclusive. It's very frustrating, too, because you see moments where they make these finds, like, say, the, the, where he finds this supposed fragment of a human skull. Mm-hmm. And it's just sitting in the sand right in front of him. And then he just, he, he look he points to it. And then this Gail McKinnon, who's the archaeologist, which drives me crazy. She literally just goes over there and just picks it up. 
It's like, you don't do that. No, like you, you photograph it in situ. You have ruler, like measurements. You, you know, yeah. there's multiple photographs there has to be and a multiple yeah. it drives me absolutely crazy but this is obviously if, for entertainment well that's just it right like yeah is it just to sort of revive interest in it and get people going again i think or, so yeah. i mean the thing the, the the funny thing about this documentary was yeah it's a lot of it was they, yeah they were going off of the castiglione the first find but they didn't mention it mm-hmm. um so they obviously didn't mention the 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 fact that it's not very legit in the mm-hmm. academic community so they this weren't going to start their documentary releases, right because this is in 2002. All those news releases came in 2009. So it was more just... I think it was a little bit more under the radar, maybe? Because I haven't found been. any... I haven't found any sources from the early 2000s. The only thing that I did find wasn't related to the Castiglione's. And that mm-hmm. was the 2000... Um, year 2000, sorry. Um, that expedition of geologists from Helwan University. And they were just looking for oil. And they stumbled upon bone fragments, arrowheads, that type of okay. thing. Okay, yeah. That was not referenced in this documentary, but after they made those initial finds, they took it to Egyptian authorities, and that's when the Council of Antiquities, the Supreme Council, they said they were going to pursue it, and we just haven't heard anything since. Haven't heard anything since. Except for them discrediting the Castiglione's. Yeah. That's the only thing. And I mean, we're going to post some, we're going to, like we said, but we're going to post the photos of of some of these finds and stuff, and one of them from the Castiglione's, the cache of bones, is really interesting to look at because (laughs) they're sun bleached. They They look look like like they're from the dollar store. They look like (laughs) Halloween props a little bit. Now, it's possible that they could have become that white by being, yeah, exposed Mm. to the sun. And And it is possible that those photographs were taken after the bones were cleaned up. As they lay on the ground, could have right? Been. They could have been dusted off and whatever. So I feel like if you just uncovered that randomly, they would not look that pretty. Definitely not. So there's there's some issues there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this this documentary with with Tom Bone, they basically spend what forty five minutes of the. Do- I mean, it's a forty five minute documentary. They yeah. they're wandering around kicking sand. They end up and, finding a dead uh, camel. They find a. <laughs> That's the biggest. They find. find you know they don't really find anything, and it's sort of just they find shards of pottery dating from ancient times to modern times and they don't that that thing for me that drives me crazy about this documentary is that they don't develop any of that no they don't go to any place that could say like date anything they don't get the bones verified that they supposedly find nothing's verified no it's pure entertainment and then it ends up the last scene is just him staring at a freaking a big pile of sand saying oh we need to organize more stuff we need to get out there and and discover this lost army because i know where it is supposedly but and then we were sitting there being like he's a bit of a buffoon wow super profound Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i mean whatever at least they're at least you know it it is still being it is still being pushed forth pushed forward right and i mean that's important because and that's part of the reason why we wanted to do this podcast in general is to not only learn new things ourselves but keep perpetuating the research for these things because we want to you know, we're like, we're the Fox Mulders of the world. We want, yes. we want to search, we're searching for the truth. We want to believe and we want to mm-hmm. find, find what actually happened. Whether or not we're ever going to actually find skeptical, what happened. We're a bit skeptical, but we're intrigued. Exactly. We want to, yeah. And hopefully so the Tom Brown document, sorry, Tom Bone talk documentary didn't really, <laughs> it just seems like his last name should be Brown. I, know. I don't know why it's Bone. Change your name, buddy. Maybe it um, was a misspelling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But I've seen um, it in several, I don't know, several but, sources. Uh, you know, we didn't. Nothing really came of that. No. There was no conclusive anything. The other the other accounts before that have been much more profound. And I think the most profound so far is the Castiglione's. 
I mean, despite and their... And whether or not that was fabricated remains to be seen. Sort of, it's, yeah. It's definitely been discredited by most academics and most people that yeah. are in the field. So let's get to this last one. Capper. Yeah, okay. Because this okay. is the most fascinating because it is the most current. And it's... And it, and it is... It goes against the grain. It does. It really goes against the grain. So this he, guy... Yeah. Give a little background and on just this And just even just before we get into that what we're diving into now is the second line of thought related right. to the fate of the army. Yeah. So this has to do with the idea that they were not swallowed up by a sea of sand and that they were in fact defeated by Egyptian sources or forces, sorry. Yeah. Sources and forces. Sources and forces. Forces of sources. Anyways. Yeah. Okay. So this is Olaf Copper. Is Olaf name, Copper. Right? So this guy, he, I believe he's from Denmark. I, yeah, I think he's so. He's from a Nordic Yeah, he's country. Danish. He, he's he Danish, Danish, yeah. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we watched a TED Talk of his, which was interesting. illuminating. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was interesting. He's very well-spoken, and, and he's his, his, he's done a lot of good work. Definitely. He's an Egyptologist. Um, definitely, yeah, he his main work revolves around um, excavating the Dakla Oasis, and there's this temple in particular that he takes a lot of his evidence from. So anyways, yes, he theorizes... And he specializes in this era of Egypt. That's exactly. I mean, it's not ancient, ancient, ancient Egypt. It was in this sort of the last 400 years of the empire. So he believes that the army was defeated by um, an Egyptian rebel leader known as Pedubastus IV. And the reason that he attributes it to this guy in particular is because of these stones that he's found that were basically... um, from what I've read, it basically was like the inscription above the entranceway to the temple. And this was common for all highly revered Egyptian leaders, right? They would build things, they would contribute, and they would have things named after them. And they would have, you know, inscriptions about whatever. And so it was kind of ambiguous, though, as to whether or not this particular temple was built by the Fourth, which would have been in the time frame of Cambyses. There was several Pedobastus, as you can see but he's the fourth yep originally they thought it was the first but then there were some inconsistencies with that and they realized that it couldn't have been it had to be this guy but about just the fourth so anyways yeah he capper reasons that the um the eventual myth about this deadly sandstorm was a cover-up by darius just to make Mm. up for cambyses um failings as a ruler yeah and just to like yeah just to (laughs) cover up the embarrassment i guess so he thinks that that was darius covering that up yeah now, we'll get into our own theories in a minute mm-hmm. here, and, yeah. and that's uh, that's a point that I want to touch on, but you keep... Our keep, sort of commentary on keep, his theory. Keep going, mm-hmm. with, uh, keep going with that. Yeah, so anyways, this is a quote from Capper from a Sci-Fi News article. Oh, sorry, <laughs> Sci News. Not Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi. Sci News. Anyways, quote, Darius the One attributed the shameful defeat of his predecessor to natural elements. Thanks to this man- effective manipulation, 75 years after the events, all Herodotus could do was take note of the Sandstorm story. Hmm. so yeah he just he basically he's going along with the idea that winners rewrite history and darius in order to preserve the image of his um predecessor he just it's like you know what no we're not gonna let the egyptians because basically what he was trying to do was wrangle up all these revolting kingdoms and like you know parts of the empire that were sort of dissolving away and after the event of kempsey's death Mm -hmm. so in a sense that could be there might be something to that, but anyways. Yeah, so he goes on to... There's another quote here. Yeah, anyways, he... 
I'm not going to read the whole quote because it's actually really long, but essentially he, he believes that the final destination was Dakla, which was where Pedibastus's army was located. And so he theorizes that, okay, he kind of contradicts himself in a sense because on one note, he's saying basically his army was sent to defeat Pedibastus and then move on to the Siwa Oasis is mm-hmm. the idea. Right. But then he goes and says that they were ambushed and defeated that way. So it's like, if, yeah. I feel like that's kind of... It's a bit of a contradiction. A little bit, because if they were sent there with the intention of, like, how would they... Anyways. He also has the very outland... Well, I mean, well, I, I immediately thought it sounded outlandish when he said it, but mm-hmm. he does a TED Talk. I think, did we mention that? He has a TED Talk. We'll post, we'll post a link to Definitely it. Because it's interesting. It's about 15 oh, minutes. The most hilarious claim, though. Go for it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is ripe right here. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, he makes this offhand comment um, that it, it, it's nearly impossible to die in a sandstorm, which... He says it... No, he says it is impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. It's, it's possible to die from thirst after being in the desert for days and days without water in a sandstorm. But right. he says you can't actually die from the sandstorm itself. Where we kind of looked into that a little bit further, and first-hand accounts from people that have been in a sandstorm essentially you are being suffocated by yeah. particles of sand. If you do not have a bandana you keep, over your exactly. face, you will suffocate. Yeah. If you... Um, and and, and, and if was, you lay down, if you stay still, you're just going to get covered up in sand. Yeah. Yeah, you're buried. Yeah, you're dead. Um, and Don't. yeah, there, there was accounts from, from Laszlo from Almasi in the 30s where he was doing his expeditions and he got trapped for eight days in a sandstorm. Mm-hmm. He almost died because yeah. he ran out of provisions. He was you know, hold up on the side of a hill or whatever it was. And At least you, you almost a car, died. Right. And yeah, that Imagine would... if you were, if you were in an army marching and all you have for protection is those around you. Yeah. So maybe they were huddling together and maybe, you know, like for protection just to, and then who knows, who knows? And they were already, well, no, I'm thinking of the army that went south where they were already weakened, right? From lack of food and supplies, that mm-hmm. type of thing. But you never know what the conditions were with that particular army. I think one of the main things that we touched on before that definitely kind of like adds to the legitimacy is the idea that Tom Bone mentioned this in that documentary and it was mentioned in you know numerous other ones that you got to take a zero or a couple of zeros off of the off of the ancient account. So mm-hmm. even if this 50,000 uh, troop army was 5,000 troop army, you know, that that's stranger things have happened. Crazier things have happened than mm-hmm. than uh, than I think a sandstorm becoming large enough to maybe not completely bury them instantly, but to you know. What if they got scattered? What if they were separated? You know, there's that's a lot. There's a lot of theories, and we're gonna we're yeah. gonna get into our own in just a sec. Mm-hmm. But Copper, I mean, yeah, he has this. He he doesn't think he can die in a sandstorm. He thinks that they were defeated potentially. He thinks that you should we should be looking for a battlefield in a totally different location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's very very vague. And for me, I know we don't know a lot of Pedibastus the Fourth. Just like you know, like speaking of contempt, like just mainstream history wise, or even Egyptologists don't know much about this guy in particular, but. What is curious to me is why this wouldn't have been recorded, right? Like, or maybe it was and it was just lost. Yeah, maybe you don't possibly. Know. I mean, like maybe he did take credit because this guy, Pedibastus, he actually went on to rule Egypt for about two years in the wake of um, after Cambyses' death and this whole 
weird like sort of like um, dissolution of the fringes of the persian empire right. and then the re like reigning in of that yeah and so he ruled for about two to three years and two to three years is a decent chunk of time it is you know he so had you would a think temple. you'd have your accounts you'd have your records yeah. which which yeah is supported by the extensive construction at the dakla oasis that right. he was supposedly in charge of yeah and, and and copper makes a point of that saying obviously this guy was important mm-hmm. and if you're important and the reason that you came to power was that you fended off the advancing persians mm-hmm. you'd think that would be like the tip top of your accomplishments like that is what you'd be You'd be telling that at exactly. parties. You'd be telling that at your at you have parties to wonder, for years. Though, you have to wonder, after Darius like took back control of Egypt, what if he just erased those records? Possibly, that's another possibility, right? Yeah. Because he. But here's another thing. So let's. You know, what? I think now's the time we're already kind of migrating. So let's into just go our, and critique all these. People. We're mine. We're migrating into our own theories yeah. here and critiquing these. So, <laughs> I mean, building on building on that. Mm-hmm. I think going back to the idea that Darius would have tried to, would have fabricated this story to cover up the f- the shortcomings of his predecessor doesn't make sense to me. Hmm. Yeah, he was Persian as well, mm-hmm. but why would you... It's not you, his reign. It's not his reign. You're still in power. It's not like it's a democratic vote where mm-hmm. you're going to be like, oh, this guy was also a democrat. He screwed up. So now we don't like you anymore. Yeah. It's not like that. No. He could have... You know, you'd think that like he would flip that around and take it, uh, t- take a totally different approach to it, and basically mm-hmm. say, "Look how weak our the, your your former emperor was." And like, you I'm have to the consider the one. relationship they had, though. Darius, Did they have a good Darius? relationship? Well, if anyone could have a good relationship with Cambyses, I would say it would be Darius because he was one of his most trusted advisors. He was one of his spearmen, which I'm not sure. Right. I'm assuming that's just, like, the king's guard, the, the people that were, you know, immediately surrounding him and mm-hmm. um, advising him on the campaign and whatever. Well, here's, so, here's... But then you have to wonder, though, like, what if... I don't know. I, Darius could have manipulated things on several different yeah. layers, right? Like, he could have... I just feel like that, that like, Capper's... Like, like, that speculation is even more speculative than some of these other things. Like, yeah. to say that... Well, first of all, first of all, why is it, why does it soften the blow for his predecessor to say that the army was swallowed by the sand? Like, that's worse. That is worse than saying you got into a big, you got into a battle with Mm -hmm. a, with a rebel king and lost. Mm -hmm. That, that, That that's way more legit. That's way more legit than just being, yeah, I sent 50,000 troops and I shouldn't have. And then they got swallowed in the sand. They didn't even fight anybody. And now they're gone. And that was my bad. Should have taken the coastal route. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a more softened blow to me. Mm-hmm. So that rationale doesn't really jive for me. Like, yeah. I don't really get that. And I also don't... Yeah, like you said, obviously, yeah, Darius could have erased the accounts. But again, why would why would Petabastus not have touted this? Why would mm-hmm. he not have touted this? And along the same line of thinking, going back to the obviously the original story, Herodotus' account, why would the Ammonians not have taken credit? Yeah. If they had a scout that had gone ahead or they had knowledge that the army was swallowed by the sand, why would they not have just said that they defeated the army in some why epic 300 that? stance? Because that's had... where the account comes from. It comes from an Ammonian right. source. That's yeah. where Herodotus got it from. So 
It seems very strange Why to me. Why you just take credit for it? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> you're trying... I mean, you're Egyptian. You're fending off and advancing... Unless they wanted to um, lessen the antagonistic elements with the Persians and be like, oh, you guys, you know, there's a lot of crazy shit over here and you probably shouldn't send people this way because of natural elements, not because we're powerful and we're going to defeat you and right. we're challenging you by saying we already defeated one of your 50,000 strong armies. Yeah. Send another one. Send 100,000. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like... Mm-hmm. might not might have just flared things up unnecessarily right but you have to wonder whether they would have been thinking about that at all yeah. but well um anyways yeah so that's kind so of the main gist we've, of we've yeah that we've we've gotten basically still, to the end of this so still open-ended nothing's been found and but what do you think happened what do i mean if you had to pick if you had to pick <laughs> your your yeah i mean we're we've reached the point here where we're at our conclusions definitely one of the most epic stories that i've come across i mean there's a lot there's so many angles to this and i mean i want to believe that that this army is out there somewhere Um, i yeah me too you know for me but even it's kind of funny because in both circumstances you're gonna find you know a whole unless unless if if the battle scenario actually took place then perhaps the bodies would have been cleaned up they would have been I don't think they burned them, but I think they would have been buried. They would have been taken care of. They wouldn't have just been left in the desert, no. right? No. But, uh, actually, no, they might have been because remember Herodotus, he has several accounts of, remember he compares Egyptian skulls with Persian skulls and he compares <laughs> the thickness the of them because yeah. yeah. he's at this, this, um, the site of a former battle that had occurred years and years previous. One of the battles probably in Cambyses time, like era, right? The consolidating yeah. Egypt into the Persian empire. Yeah. And the idea that Herodotus, um, he basically states that the Egyptian skulls were like four times thicker or whatever, three or four times thicker than the Persian skulls. And he attributes that to the... The sun. Exposure to the sun. Exactly. Because the Egyptians would shave like almost like a cul-de-sac, right? And expose their skull versus the Persians would always wear these like felt hat things Mm -hmm. over their heads. Mm -hmm. And And they grew thicker hair. They would grow their hair or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Funny. Which is hilarious, eh? Yeah another reason to pick up uh, the histories and give it a browse through because yes. there's lots of fascinating things in there yeah we've definitely had a lot of fun exploring this guy but, this mystery in particular and but ultimately for me yeah what about I, you What's i your think here? like i think it's tough because i the castiglione's their account and the things that they found looked fishy and they didn't take it from an the academic stance the methodology is not there yeah it's mm-hmm. not there but I do like the theory that they took a they took an alternate route mm-hmm. that they took a more of a they took a route south mm-hmm. along the Nile and looped up the other way. You know they were already they would have already been maybe not those troops specifically familiar with heading that direction, but they would have had a lot more resources to work with heading that direction. Mm-hmm. And even if this was a super last minute brash decision to send these men. You still have generals, you still have, you still have generals and leaders and people. They're not just autonomous, autonomous, whatever. Like Mm -hmm. they're not just non-thinking whatever, right? They have, they they had, they had generals Mm -hmm. and these generals took their orders, but they still would have made the individual decisions to like put them in the best position. And they were Mm -hmm. a super successful army. I mean, they had conquered the kingdom of Babylon. They'd conquered numerous, the, the, um, Lycia was another mm-hmm. empire that Cyrus overtook. And I mean, this is, these are the remnants of his empire. So it's not like it's a, 
a shoddy a shoddy military no and i think i kind of i kind of buy that they might have gone that how shoddy is your military does it have to do with the military itself or the leadership that's directing it so but he wasn't physically there is what i'm saying i mean you send an army off to do something right he 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 did the uh ethiopian yeah he was sitting in memphis when all this was happening exactly so i mean he's it's not like he's there saying no no Mm. we're doing it my way you know yeah, um, I, I hear you. You know, it's funny, actually. I did come across um, one account. It was an ebook. Oh, I think it's right here, actually. And they had it all wrong. They were saying, um, oh, my gosh. What was the... Uh... Oh, shoot. I'm totally blanking now. But anyways, yeah, it was uh, definitely an inaccurate account. And... Anyways, so what yeah. what do you think though? Let's like what's what's I mean ultimately at the end of the day I think true. copper. I don't agree with the thing that you can't die in a sandstorm. No. At you know we've heard I I came across accounts where people, you know would get there would there would be, you know powerful winds would blow up and it would strip the paint off the side of their jeep in in like half a an hour. Hours, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I don't understand. I, if that if that can happen, but you can't die from a sandstorm, that doesn't add up to me. Exactly. So, I'm not really buying that. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to make a point of, I think I did earlier, but Herodotus' account, like you said this, it's super brief. It's just and really vague. It's not like he hyped it up. No, and, I, and, and, and he hypes up a lot of stuff yeah. in that book. And, you know, if... If he's getting this story secondhand from Egyptian low-level priests and different sources and stuff like that, if those sources liked Cambyses, why would they tout this? Mm-hmm. It's possible that Darius floated the story and, and that it was just a thing. But that takes away from the you know, potential other accounts of Ammonians or other stories getting out mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and floating out there. And maybe they're still out there to be discovered. You know what I mean? Like... We haven't found everything that's to be discovered in Egypt, and maybe no. there will be some more modern accounts of what related to this story. I really want there to be another mission, another expedition that is focused on using LiDAR technology. Yeah. I think that's going to uncover the answers. I think so, too. We're missing. Because if, if this 50,000-strong army, or even 5,000-strong, with all the supplies, everything, there's definitely going to be evidence. There's going to be... There's going to be stuff to uncover. And sand is one of the best mediums to work with for LiDAR. So that, I feel, would be super illuminating. So if you were to pick a theory that you thought was most accurate, what what would that be? I mean, I'm I'm riding with the Castiglionis. At least the theory that they went south and um, looped up and... Maybe they still did get swallowed in the sand. It just wasn't between the section of desert that was reported in the histories. Because essentially, wasn't like, the way that it was described in that documentary was that it's almost like a you you start to go in a spiral through this sea of sand. You just get lost and lost and more lost. So whether what part of the spiral they were on, right, maybe they're just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this, like, circle, right? Yeah. So who knows where exactly they ended they up. They could have just got disoriented. I think, exactly. that, I think that's what Who knows? What maybe the army ended up splitting apart and it was just like fend for yourself i think that's what happened honestly i I think that's what happened i think they they took a different route than what would than what uh is reported in herodotus because that was a outrageous route to take Mm -hmm. and even if they did take that this this could still be possible but 
I think if they went the southern way and looped up around the, the idea that a massive storm still came about, and the idea that somebody saw them taking their midday meal when this happened makes more sense if they went the south way. There's more people, there's more villages and, 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 and nomadic travelers in that region rather than just heading straight out into the Sahara, into, yeah. right? So there was more chance of them being actually seen and this actually happening. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that possibly a storm, it was probably a lot smaller group than 50,000 mm-hmm. and that they got separated by a storm and whether or not they were outright swallowed or not is irrelevant. They, they were probably, I, I believe that they got separated and died. In yeah. The desert. Yeah. That's my theory. That's so you might not even find fifty thousand bodies. You, you might, might find found... scattered bodies. Yeah. And... You might find. And then once those bodies have decayed or, or like you know been uh, mummified essentially because it is a super dry, hot conditions which is perfect for mummification. Yeah. You would think that yeah it's just just scattered to the winds essentially. All right, so I guess we're going to wrap this up. We're going to wrap up uh, episode one. Hopefully you guys found this uh, as entertaining as we did and definitely look into some of the resources that we've looked into. We're going to be posting that and... Yeah, we want to hear back. We want to, we want feedback. Yeah, send us feedback. We know <laughs> this episode, this first episode. If we're episode, too rambly, tell us. Yeah. If if we are lacking details that you think need to be included, please let us know. Definitely. We're definitely open to all of that. And we just want to have a great time discussing this stuff yeah, and, and we wanna, getting more people involved. Absolutely. We want to get as many people involved as possible and, and put forward the, the best information we can. Mm. So any feedback, reach out to us on Facebook. In the can, most entertaining way. In the most entertaining mm-hmm. way. Because all of this is just super fascinating. Mm-hmm. So you can reach out to us on Facebook. You can reach us at intotheportalmailbox at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And, um, you we have can, our website up now. It's intotheportal.com. That's right. Mm-hmm. As and, well, we do um, have, um, you already mentioned the Facebook, we do have a Instagram account that's going to be up and running in the next uh, couple weeks, yeah. I would assume. We're so lots of ways to reach out with us. Yeah. Let us know what you think of this first episode. Please. And um, stay tuned for episode two. Yeah. That'll be released in the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be on the cryptid that lurks in Lake Okanagan, the Ogopogo. Mm-hmm. So thanks so much for listening to episode one on the Lost Army of Cambyses. We'll see you next time on into the portal.